Well, our study uh, of Nehemiah began with a conversation uh, between Nehemiah and his brother. And what we learned in that conversation was the concern that Nehemiah had for his family and friends, as well as his faith in God. Despite what I assumed to be a pretty comfortable position as a cupbearer to the king, as a high position of authority, Nehemiah still cared deeply about those in need. And when he learned of that distress that was being experienced by his family, he took that concern to the Lord in prayer. In fact, as we learned, for four months, Nehemiah prayed as God shaped his heart to be in alignment with his will to the point that Nehemiah realized that he was the answer to his very own prayer. But we learned in response to that, Nehemiah had to begin to take steps of faith. And those inherently were were risky at times. But Nehemiah was strong because he believed in God's faithfulness to His covenant promises and His loyal love. Over time, Nehemiah began to realize that God's plan was much bigger than just rebuilding a wall. He began to understand that God was intent on rebuilding His people. Because you remember, these events are taking place in the context of a, a spiritual revival that is happening with the remnant in Jerusalem. And so the wall was more than just a defense against their enemies. It was symbolic of who they were as God's people, separate and apart from the compromise and the influence of the world around them. God was doing more than just rebuilding a wall. He was rebuilding a people. And He was doing so by helping strengthen their faith along the way. As we talk about strengthening their That's actually a subject that I used to know a little bit about, strength training, when I was studying to be a physical therapist. I spent a lot of time and money uh, learning about practicing to be a physical therapist, and since I'm not doing that anymore, I figured it'd be okay to take some of those principles and apply them to our passage this morning, put that to good use, right? So if you'll indulge me, here's what I want to do. As a physical therapist, I was trained to prescribe a certain exercise program to address a certain weakness or need. That could be from an injury. It could be rehab after surgery. But my goal was to prescribe certain areas to strengthen certain weaknesses in muscles. And to do this, I would usually start with some kind of small resistance and then increasingly build up a stronger resistance or more weight over time so they got stronger and stronger. And and my goal as a therapist was to ultimately allow you to be able to do these things on your own so that you didn't need me, but you knew what to do and you could practice them at home. Well, this morning, I want to give you an exercise program for building your faith muscles. Okay? And like we talk about as a physical therapist, we're going to start with resistance. It's going to start small, and we're going to gradually increase that resistance over time. And the resistance, according to our passage, is going to come in the form of opposition. In this case, from the enemy. Like strength training, it'll start small. But it'll get more and more difficult with time. But I can assure you, if you're faithful in practicing this exercise program, your faith will grow stronger with time. 
I thought about this this morning. And again, I mentioned this at the beginning of the year when we talked about the studies that we would be doing and we looked forward to Nehemiah and then Proverbs and then 1 Corinthians. And not unlike every year, uh, God has something in mind that we could have never seen ahead of time that He's preparing us for as we walk through these series together. We live in a time where we face opposition. And it's good to be able to look at God's Word and understand what it means to stand strong in the face of that opposition. I know that there are crises going on in people's lives. We prayed this morning because more than I can remember in recent past, people are going through some of the more difficult things that I have seen since I've been here in this position at Melanie Park Church. I mean, who would have thought that just a couple of weeks ago somebody breaks in and steals stuff from our sanctuary? We're in the midst of times of opposition, and we need to hear what God's Word has to say about standing strong in those times. So this is for us, and He knew that ahead of time. So let's listen closely to what He has to say. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are sovereignly in control of all things. You know everything that happens before it ever occurs. And so you have prepared us for things that we would never see coming, both today and tomorrow and in the weeks, months, and years to come. And your word is intended to strengthen us, to help us in those times of need. It's a prescription for how to grow strong in our faith as we face the opposition of sin in the world that surrounds us. So may you have our attention this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to see the truth of your word. Shape us. Mold us. May your spirit guide us as we look at your scripture this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last. We're going to cover a lot of territory this morning. So hang with me as we go through these verses. But we're going to start in chapter 4 verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on top of it, he would break it down. The wall would fall. Hear, O God, how we are despised, says Nehemiah. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquities and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. If you follow that progression of Sambalay, beginning back in chapter 2, verse 10, when Nehemiah first rolls into town, it says that he was displeased when he saw that happening. Then as it goes a little farther, it says that he openly despised and mocked the Jews. And now in our passage this morning, it says that he was furious 
and very angry. That's a double negative. Basically, he's saying he was so angry, he was at the point of rage. And so this powerful drug lord slash gang leader shows up with his other hoodlums and he begins to mock the Jews to their faces as they continue to build the wall. He says, oh, look at those miserable Jews. That word feeble in the Scripture is actually translated literally miserable. Oh, look at those miserable Jews. Do they think they're going to really rebuild this wall? They're using stones that have been burned for the first time that we knocked it down. Are they going to continue doing it? And Tobiah jumps in and says, look, if there was a, if there was a fox that were to step across that wall, it would all come down. What miserable Jews. And I'm sure at this point all the gang leaders that are with him would just laugh and approve of what was saying. You see what he's doing here? He's intentionally trying to demoralize the workers, but I also think he is building the indignation of his own gang members. In other words, he's trying to pick a fight. His hope is that somebody is going to get just mad enough that they retaliate. And that they do something that gives him a justifiable reason to open the whole can of worms. And come down as hard as he can on the Jews. And the king can't say anything because he was just defending himself. But did you notice Nehemiah's response in verse 4? Hear, O God. He immediately begins to pray. And as we've gone through this book in just these few short chapters, we've begun to see a pattern, haven't we? Every time Nehemiah faces a problem, what does he do? He prays. That's the first thing he does. But I want you to notice the emotion in his prayer. If you look at verse 4, it literally says, turn back their taunt on their own heads. You know, I don't think Nehemiah is very happy about this situation either. I think he's pretty angry too. And yet, he doesn't lash out at the enemy. He just takes that honest emotion right to God in prayer. He doesn't give it back to them because he knows that's exactly what they're hoping he'll do. Nehemiah feels the anger of emotion, but he takes that emotion to the Lord in prayer. And he says, God, what they are doing is not right. They are demoralizing your people. And I pray that you give them exactly what they deserve. And here's why. The Jews are doing God's will. But the enemy is mocking that work. Who are they belittling if they are mocking the work of the Jews? See, I think Nehemiah is taking offense not only for just the Jews because it's demoralizing them, but I think they're, when they're mocking God's people who are doing God's will, then ultimately, who are they mocking? God. They're mocking God. And this infuriates Nehemiah. And so as we think about this, here's our first step in our exercise program of building our faith muscles. All right? Whenever you face opposition, the first course of action is to go to God in prayer. More than that, go to God in honest prayer. 
that quality of being honest is important. Because I think a, a lot of times we feel like we've got to clean ourselves up before we go to the Lord in prayer. We, we can't tell Him exactly how we feel. We've got to say it in a certain righteous way. As if He doesn't already know what's on our heart to begin with. So if you're angry, then express your anger. I promise you, He can handle it. And He can handle your frustration, your discouragement, your fear. Be honest in your prayer before the Lord. If you don't believe me, just look at Psalms. <laughs> Those are really a record of David's prayer. And you want to talk about some raw emotion? It's all there. Be honest in your prayers. Now, I'm not suggesting that you dishonor God by lashing out at Him. But what I am saying is when you do go to Him, be honest about the emotion that's on your heart because of what's happening around you. It's just not healthy to hold that in, especially when it involves people you love. As Hud Huddleston has said, we live in a broken world, and guess what? Sin splatters. What he means by that is that we know people who are lost in sin, and, and we hurt, but we also hurt for those who are around them, often innocently bystanding, but still impacted by the impact of of their sin. Don't pretend that that doesn't matter. Because it does. Prayer is essential. Because it allows you to take the, the emotion of situations that you cannot control to the only one who can. Prayer may be a small first step, but it will make a huge difference if you're honest before God in your prayers. That's phase one. Honest prayer. Well, let's increase the resistance a little bit. The opposition is going to get a little stronger. Look at verse 7. I'm going to read several verses, so follow along with me. Now it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come upon them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. It came about when the Jews lived near them, came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, to the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. And it came about from this day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held their spears. 
their shields, their bows, and their breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. And for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. In that time I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. It's quite a scene, isn't it? You see, Sanballat left because his first attempt didn't work, but when he comes back, he comes back with a whole new set of friends. He's moved from insulting speech to an alliance of conspiracy. Since mocking them didn't happen, he decides he might threaten them. In fact, the people that are listed in verse 7, if you look at that list, it's very specific who they are and where they came from. And what's important to know about that is that it describes enemies in every direction. You see, Sanballat and Tobiah are from Samaria, to the north. The Arabs are from the south. The Ammonites live to the east. The Ashdodites to the west. And who knows, maybe they all came up at the same time. And when the Jews looked up, literally, enemies were coming from every single direction they turned. Which would explain why in verse 10 it says that their strength was failing and they began to doubt their ability to finish the wall. Because after all, the enemies who surrounded them made it clear that their goal was to stop the work through the power of the sword. If you look at verse 11, it's clear. Their intent was to kill them in order to terminate the work on the wall. And this message was heard not just once. It says that the people of the surrounding communities came to those inside Jerusalem doing the work ten times to relay this message to them. As the enemies continued to show up, literally in every direction they turned. Now, notice in verse 14 that Nehemiah looked into the eyes of his people and what did he see? Fear. Do you blame them? They're surrounded by their enemies. Their intent is to kill them. Ten times they've heard this message being proclaimed. But I want you to notice that the text doesn't say anything about Nehemiah being fearful. And quite possibly, he saw right through their empty threats. But when he looked into the eyes of his fellow Jews, he saw that they were afraid. And so in response... Nehemiah did not turn to the Jews and belittle them for their being afraid. Instead, he equipped them to face their fears so that they could continue their work on the wall. 
What we see here is a combination of, of faith and responsibility. They were facing a real and present danger. Let's not minimize that. It was a warranted fear. But Nehemiah reminds them that the battle belongs to the Lord. And as he says in verse 20, God will fight for us. If you hear that trumpet sound, you rally to this place, and you need to know that we stand together and God goes before us. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so in order to ready everyone, they all carried a weapon. Some carried a weapon girded to their side as they continued the work with both hands. Some held one hand with a weapon and the other hand did some work. And some were fully armored so that they could watch the enemy when everybody had their back turned so that nobody was caught off guard. We get the idea that Nehemiah continued to kind of walk around the, 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 the walls and he had a trumpeter at his side. And he said, when you hear that trumpet sound... We're all going to rush to the battle. And if he's the one sounding the alarm, guess who's first in line? Nehemiah. In other words, the work on the wall continued while everyone stood ready to fight. Now look again at verse 15. Notice the response of the enemy. It says that God had frustrated their plan when the work continued on the walls. You see, they thought that the Jews would become so overwhelmed by the threat that literally surrounded them that they would be overcome by fear and they would quit. But Nehemiah redirected their fear of the enemy toward a faith in God. He redirected their fear in the enemy to a faith in God. So here's the next phase of our exercise program of building our faith muscles. It is turning to God in faith. Continue in that practice of prayer, but make sure that your focus is on the power of God. These qualities are essential for making a strong defense. If you'll remember what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be ready to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see, we're not all that different than the Jews. We too are surrounded by an enemy on every side. And the threat from the world becomes if that threat from the world becomes our primary focus, then we too can become paralyzed in fear. If we're not careful, we can allow our circumstances to overwhelm us instead of relying on the power within us. Remember, greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. But that means that you can't wait for the enemy to attack before you decide to put on your armor. You need to have your armor on and stand ready for the attack. Every day you go to work, whatever that looks like, school, home, business, every day you must 
be ready to stand against the schemes of the devil. Just like every Jew had a a sword girded to their side, we must also be equipped, as that passage in Ephesians goes on to say, to be girded with a sword of the Spirit, which is what? Do you remember? It's the Word of God. It says, gird yourself with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Knowing God's truth is what prevents you from being overwhelmed by the lies of the world. Prayer turns our heart towards God. His Word calls to mind what is true. And both of these are necessary for strengthening our faith. Going to God in prayer and going to God in His Word. All right. It's time to increase the resistance a little bit. Are you ready? Turn over to chapter 6. We'll get back to chapter 5 next week, but I want you to follow along with me in chapter 6 because uh, we're going to stay with these external forces that are coming against the Jews. Next week we'll look at what's happening on the inside. That's a whole different story. But read with me chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when it was reported that Sanballat, Tobiah, um, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors Uh, in the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Cheparim in the plain of Ono. I love that. Oh no is really what it is. We're not going to do that in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Since Sanballat and his evil allies can't win by attacking the people, by threatening them and surrounding them, now they decide to go straight for their leader. The focus shifts to one person, Nehemiah. Now, I consider this to be a a pretty weak attempt Because they are obviously not going to get anywhere by trying to draw Nehemiah out because everybody knows what their evil intent is. (laughs) They've already made that clear. We're there to kill people. So if Nehemiah is isolated from everybody else, what are they going to do to him? They're going to kill him. And Nehemiah knows that. So he refuses to meet with them. But I think that there was some hope that they might be able to convince Nehemiah to come out and visit with them by playing into his pride. Because it's as if Sam Belay is saying, okay, all right, Nehemiah, you win. Look, you obviously are a great leader. So why don't you come out and talk to another great leader? And man to man, let's work through this together. Because remember, that policy of compromise has already worked for Sam Belay. That first remnant of Jews who came in found themselves in a place of utter spiritual and moral decay. Why? Because they literally went to bed with the enemy. They compromised to the point that it was better to just get along by going along. So if it worked the first time, why not convince Nehemiah to go ahead and do the same? I think Nehemiah is inviting or excuse me, Sanballat is inviting Nehemiah 
to just go along. Just get along by, by going along. But Nehemiah didn't even entertain the option, did he? I love his response. My interpretation of what he says is, don't bother me. I'm busy. Can't you see? I'm building a wall. Notice that Nehemiah doesn't worry with diplomacy when dealing with a tyrant. Wouldn't that be great if we had that same commitment from leaders in our world today? But look at how Sambalay continues. Four times he made the same request. But look what Nehemiah does. Every single time his answer was simple. No. No. I will not do it. So, in order to build our faith muscles, right, we need to continue in our practice of prayer. We need to stay girded with the truth of God's Word. And now we see that we need to stand strong in our commitment not to compromise. Diplomacy is not an option when dealing with temptation. Satan is on a mission, just like these guys were, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And so there's nothing of any redeeming value that he could possibly put on the table that would be worth negotiating over. So don't believe him when he tries to convince you, hey, look, they really left you no other choice. You deserve something better. This is not your fault. This is their fault. Or when he says, forgive that person? Are you kidding me? After what they've done to you, they don't deserve your forgiveness. Or look, business is business. If everyone does it, can't be wrong. Lie, lie, lie. Every single time. The reason you can't negotiate with the enemy is because every word that comes out of their lips is a lie. If God doesn't put it on your heart through your time in prayer, if it's not confirmed in His Word, then don't even give it a second thought. The answer is no. I will not negotiate. In order for your faith to grow strong, you must resist the temptation to compromise. I don't care what the world has to offer. The answer is no. I'm not going to entertain the option. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it will end there. Look at verse 5. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Now, that's important, and we'll talk about why. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king, according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. 
For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Sambalay came to him four times, but on the fifth time it says he came with an open letter. What we can learn from that is that the first four times were kind of a private communication. This is man to man, let's get together and talk about this. The second time was an open letter, which basically says whatever was in the letter was public information and intended for everyone to know. Remember, Sambele is trying to appeal to, to Nehemiah's pride. He's provoking him. He's saying, we all know who's in charge here. <laughs> Let's talk about this. But now the information becomes public. And he puts pressure on Nehemiah by starting rumors based on allegations that are simply not true. Let it be known that not only are the Jews planning to rebel, rumor has it, Nehemiah, you want to be king. He goes on to say, in fact, you've convinced the prophet. See, Sanballat's done his homework. He knows that according to Jewish tradition, kings are appointed by prophets. And so he's starting this rumor that you've convinced the prophets to make you king. But even more than that, when it says that, that there is a king in Judah, that's a messianic claim. He's saying, look, Nehemiah thinks he's the Savior, the one who's come to rescue the Jews. He wants the people to listen to this open letter and begin to think, now, now wait a second, is that true? Does Nehemiah want to be, does he want to be king? Does he really think he's the Messiah? Wait a second, what's going on here? I'm sure that Nehemiah is hoping, or Sanballat is hoping that Nehemiah is insulted by the rumors and he is provoked to say something, to, to retaliate in some way. But again, why would Nehemiah give any credit to something that's based in complete and total lies? He simply says, Sanballat, the lies you are speaking are a figment of your imagination. In other words, I refuse to respond to such ridiculous claims. I'm not going to waste my breath. And then it says that Nehemiah says, Oh God, strengthen my hands. He's praying again. I want you to listen to this. Nehemiah was strong before his enemies. He says, I'm not talking. The answer is no. But he was humble before the Lord. Oh God, strengthen my hands. Strong before His enemies. Humble before His God. His faith was strengthened in His prayer. His commitment to God's Word. His refusal to compromise. And now, in His humility before the Lord. At no point in our exercise program of building your faith muscles do you become so strong that you're no longer in need of God. In fact, the stronger your faith, the greater your dependence upon Him. That's how it works. Pride is what comes before the fall. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. And Nehemiah wants us to see that our goal is not to make ourselves look good. It begs the question, what's more important to you? Protecting your reputation 
or honoring God's name? Which one is it? Like we see in our passage, our enemy will tempt us into sin by playing on our pride. Remember what Satan did to Jesus in his temptations in the desert? One of them is when he says, hey, look, if you're the Son of God, then, then jump from this temple and God will rescue you. I mean, he, doesn't it say in the Word that, that his, he'll send his angels to take charge over you? And Jesus essentially says, not if you're so arrogant as to put the Lord your God to the test. Humility is always having a right estimate of yourself knowing that there's never, ever a point when you don't need God. Because in the end, your goal is not to make yourself look good. Your goal is to give praise and glory to God. Even if it's at your own expense. I mean, look no further than what? The cross. Jesus himself took on the form of a bondservant, humbled himself, being obedient to death, even death on a humiliating cross. It made me think of the words this morning, even as I was thinking about our time, with the song, Stronger, when it says of Jesus, You are stronger, sin is broken. You have saved me. It is written. Christ is risen. Jesus, you are Lord of all. Humility before God is what makes your faith strong. Well, the heaviest resistance of all is yet to come. It's at this point that, that Sanballat really pulls the gloves off. And this is the lowest blow that he's taken yet. Look at verse 10. And when I entered, this is Nehemiah, when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, son of Mephibel, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. And they are coming to kill you at night. But I said... Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God has not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin. And so they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works of theirs. And also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. You see, since Nehemiah refuses to meet with the enemy, Sanballat tries another tactic. He hires a traitor to infiltrate the ranks from within. The man in verse 10 is described as a prophet. I think it's a self-proclaimed designation. 
And he summons Nehemiah to meet with him so that he can then expose a plot that has been made against Nehemiah's life. He gives no indication of how this news came to him. He just speaks with such urgency that he wants Nehemiah to respond out of fear. He says, look, they're coming after you. And they're going to come when you don't know it's happening. So the only thing that we can do is go hide in the temple. Come on. I'm going to take you to the place. I'm going to save you. Now he's hoping that Nehemiah will instinctively respond out of fear and panic in order to save his life without considering the consequences of his sin. The threat was imminent. At least that's the way it's being presented. I picture this guy kind of grabbing Nehemiah by the coat and saying, Come on, you can't wait. We've got to go hide. They're going to kill you. But Nehemiah has been following God's exercise program for building his faith muscles. By now we've already seen that Nehemiah instinctively goes to God in prayer every time he faces a problem. And in that prayer, he knows that God would never call him to do something that goes against his word. He's refused to compromise with the enemy. And he's feared God more than he feared any man. And in humility, he's paused long enough to discern that this man did not come to rescue him. He was, in fact, an enemy of God. See, Sandalay tried to lead Nehemiah into sin by using the deception of someone claiming to be a friend. But Nehemiah knew that God's word was clear. There's only one person that can enter the temple, one group of people. It's the priests. And he was not one, nor was that prophet. And so he was being asked to do something that went against the law of God. That was his clue that this man was not sent by God. Nehemiah is teaching us the importance of never making decisions out of fear. Because God will never lead you to do anything that goes against His Word. Now the reason you don't have an outline in your bulletin this week is because I made an uncharacteristic, spontaneous decision. I pretty much plan every detail of my life. But this week was spring break for my kids, and we were planning to go camping after I got my sermon done. That wasn't coming together. There were things happening during the week. The weather was supposed to go bad. So I just dropped everything and said, all right, guys, if we don't do it now, it's not going to happen. Get in the car. Let's go. So we headed off to Caprock Canyon. And uh, while we were there, we decided to take a hike to uh, the rim of the canyon, which was really fun. But if you get close to the top of that canyon, it gets pretty steep. And at times, it's really hard to discern where the trail is, what's a false path, a rock slide, and what is the direction you're supposed to go. And one of the only ways that we were able to determine what was the right way is what Graham and Grant named God Steps. <laughs> the reason they called them God Steps is because periodically, when the, when the grade got really steep, there were rocks that they had placed in the form of stairs to help you get up. I don't know which one said it first, Graham or Grant, but they looked at it and said, Look, God gave us steps. <laughs> and so from that point on, they were God steps. And we knew that as we walked on this trail, if we could see God steps, we were on the right track. I think God gives us God steps along the path of life. The evidence of His grace that helps us discern that we are, in fact, on the right track.
It's one of the ways that He helps us build faith as we learn to put our trust in Him. And we've got to pause long enough because there were plenty of times when we were taking a hike that it just made sense to keep going this direction. It looked like the trail. But what did we do, Graham? We stopped and said, wait a second, let's take a look. Oh, there's the God steps. That's the right way. We had to pause, discern, and then walk. And so here's what I used to tell my patients when they would come in and I would give them this exercise program. I'd say, look, I assure you that if you do this program, you'll get stronger. But I promise you, you won't get stronger by just knowing and not doing. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to be diligent to put in the work for this to have its intended effect. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to put this exercise program into practice. And the first thing I want to encourage you to do is be faithful in your time of honest prayer. Go before the Lord and speak honestly about things that are going on in your life. And then go to God's Word along with your time in prayer and let Him guide your steps. Believe and expect that as you look into His Word that He's going to give you the guidance that you need to know what is true and what is not. Because remember, the enemy surrounds you and he will try to convince you to take shortcuts. And those paths are going to look very Familiar, they'll, they'll appear to be the right path. But if it doesn't line up with God's Word, it's a false path. It's not the way to go. And so make a firm commitment to never, ever compromise. Never negotiate with anyone who tries to convince you of a better way, of some way that doesn't line up with what God's Word has to say. And in order to do that, you always have to remain humble. Even if you're making good progress, there's never a point in time when you no longer need God. In fact, you're lost without Him. Jesus made it clear. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. (laughs) Always run to Him instead of trying to figure things out on your own. If you stay committed to this program, I promise you, your faith will grow stronger. Pray. Spend time in God's Word. Refuse to compromise. Be humble. And pause long enough to be discerning. Look for God's steps. His grace is sufficient to carry you through. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and how you equip us for the task at hand. I think about Nehemiah and the Jews and what they faced around them, the constant threat of the enemy that surrounded them and the tendency to become overwhelmed by the fear of those things. And uh, like Nehemiah, you don't belittle us when we seem a little bit overwhelmed ourselves. We have a tendency to be equally as paralyzed by fear. But you've given us an exercise program, a way to strengthen our faith. You've given evidence through your word on how we can come before you and be guided by your word. You've encouraged us to to be firm in our commitment not to compromise. Father, to be humble before you and to be discerning 
as we consider what steps we need to take. Father, thank you for not belittling us, but instead equipping us. May we put on the full armor that you've provided and live each day girded by your word, led by your spirit, strengthened by the fellowship of the believers, and firm in our commitment. Just as we said this morning. Why? Because the victory is yours. Our God fights for us. We believe that. We pray this in our victor's name, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.